0: family, The scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Samuel 8, and that entire passage will also be the text for this morning, and it's the well-known story where Israel demands a king. 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah and they were judges in Beersheba yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain and they took bribes and perverted justice then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him behold you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways now Appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all these words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go, every man. To his city. Thus far, the reading of God's infallible word. Their church family. A man always has two reasons for what he does a good one and the real one. That saying has been attributed to J.P. Morgan, a 19th century banker and philanthropist. And even though he was a secular person, he seems to have a keen understanding of how the sinful human heart works. By nature, we are selfish, we are egocentric, we have these little kingdoms in our own hearts upon which we sit upon the throne. And everything in this world revolves around that, our own little throne. And it drives us, it drives our motives and everything that we do. And yet, selfishness is a trait that we would not accept in others, do we? It is a vice. You don't need to be a Christian to understand this. The whole world does not appreciate selfishness. So how do we live in a society where everybody by nature is selfish, and yet nobody accepts selfishness in the other person? Well, it's precisely as Mr. Morgan said, we have two reasons for everything that we do. One reason is to convince others and ourselves that we are good and kind and upright and just and all those things but behind there are the real motives that are ultimately to please ourselves in one way or another. However, if you are a true believer, that rule ought not to apply to you. Because when Christ comes into your heart and overtakes your kingdom, replaces it with His own, and He now sits on the throne of your heart, In your life, your desire will be to please God and to seek the welfare of others while counting yourself out. And for that, you you need no justification. That, however, is the ideal. That is how we ought to live as true Christians. But we know that we still live in a fallen world, and as long as we are here in this pilgrimage on earth, we carry within ourselves the nature of this old man, that sinful man that still cleaves to us, that sinful flesh that so often still drives us back to our old selfish desires. And so often our hearts will come along with this, trying to convince us to go down into a path of selfishness and sin. So when you read the saying of this Mr. Morgan, when he tells us that we always have two reasons for what we do, a good one and a real one, we ought not to dismiss that, but we need to take it to heart and frequently and often be honest with ourselves, discerning the motives behind the things that we do and say and desire. And a clear example for us is being put in Scripture here, the text that we read, when Israel comes to Samuel to request a king. There's the request itself. And then there's the motives behind the request that God exposes. But as we consider this narrative, let's not distance ourselves from what happened so many thousand years ago in ancient Israel. As we go through this passage, we need to keep on asking ourselves, to which king are you submitting your whole life? King Jesus or King Self? Our text this morning is from 1 Samuel 8, and we will be considering God's rule in our hearts. And The title for this sermon this morning is Requesting a King with three points. A good reason to request a king, the real reason to request a king, and thirdly, the gracious purpose in granting the request for a king. So first of all, a good reason to request a king. What is the good reason to request a king? Well, we've seen that the theocratic system was failing the nation. The theocratic, theocratic system that was Israel was at the time a theocracy, and what that means is that the rule of God's law, the Ten Commandments, was supreme in the land. This rule had been established as Israel was about to enter into the promised land. Moses goes up on this mountain and preaches this sermon that we now know as the book of Deuteronomy, and he lays before them the laws of the land. But if you were to read carefully through the book of Deuteronomy, what you see there, sometimes you you read these these little rules and regulations and you think they're completely very strange or very particular. How is this going to help a nation at large? But what Moses is doing essentially is he's, he's establishing the same principles that we have here in common law. He establishes case histories, if you will. He said, here is how you apply the Ten Commandments, the moral law, in daily life. Here's a little example. Now you do likewise in all the other instances. That is how the nation was supposed to function. Now, the highest authority in the nation were the local elders of the local communities. They were to have copies of that law, and if something would go wrong, you would go to them, and they would judge your case. That was the law of the land. You're talking about least government involvement. This is what it is. And God says, You adhere to this law. You adhere to this law, this theocracy. And I'm going to make you prosperous. And your society is going to flourish. Unlike any nation in the whole world. You're going to be a beacon to the world. Spiritually, you're going to be doing, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be flourishing. Economically, your barns will be full. Socially, there will be a system where the local community take care of the needs of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the people that have gone into debt. Judicially, Crimes would be dealt with in an honest and a balanced matter, and the rights of the weak would be taken care of. Militarily, there would be peace. Israel did not have a standing army. It just had a militia, meaning that if there was a time of war, every man would be called up to come and to fight with no military expertise whatsoever. The army of Israel was to go out against professional armies much more superior than theirs. But God says, I am going to fight your battles for you. And all you have to do is run after the enemies and collect their stuff. Israel was going to be a prosperous nation. And all of this without the bureaucracy and the taxation and the burdens of a central government with a king at its head. But that system apparently was failing the nation what was the drawback of this system well without a central government without a king the nation was extremely vulnerable you see israel was surrounded by hostile nations They could, without Israel having a standing army and without, Israel having a, without there being a commander-in-chief, any foreign nation could just walk across the border and invade right there and then. Possibly only with the locals being able to put up some kind of defense. But Israel was very vulnerable to invasions. Likewise, economically, Israel was dependent on rain for food. No rain meant no food. There was no national food program that would redistribute or stockpile when necessary. And indeed, in all of this, there was a lack of cohesion among the tribes. If one tribe was in need of something in defense or whatever else it was, it wasn't necessarily that you could obligate the other tribes to help them or force them to do so. And indeed, Israel suffered all these things. We are now at the end of some 300 years of the era of the judges. And you read through that book, and it's one catastrophe after another, one invasion after another, one famine after another. And everything just seems to be falling apart. Theocracy clearly wasn't working. And the problem, what the elders thought, is that this theocracy failed to be implemented by a central authority. The people were left to themselves to implement the law that was given to them. You read through the book of Judges, and what's the verdict that you read over and over again? In these days, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own sight. And indeed, over time, judges would be raised for Israel's deliverance. They would lead the people in their battles. And essentially, what they would do is restore the rule of law. But the problem with these judges is that they were no kings. They had no dynasties. Their rule only lasted a lifetime. They would die, and the land would be just as vulnerable as it was before soon enough to repeat the cycle of catastrophe and deliverance again. So the elders come to Samuel with a request for a king. They point at the theocratic system, it has failed us. And what you see in this request, this request for a king, this is a revolutionary request. Israel hadn't had a king for centuries Never had a king, essentially. This is a revolutionary request. This is new. And what you see in that request is the hope and expectation that a man will place in something new, something different, something revolutionary, something that is going to bring the solutions to all our problems. It's going to bring peace and prosperity. That's what they say. Samuel, you are old. Your sons are corrupt. This system is no longer working. Give us a king. Give us a king to rule us and to judge us. To judge us here means to actively govern. See, so far the only implementation of the law had been in a judicial form. You bring your cases before the judges and they, they saddle the matter. But there was no active ruling, there was no active governing like we would have today. What was missing in the society was essentially an administrative branch and an executive branch. And that's what they wanted the king to do. They wanted to judge them and to protect them from their enemies that he might fight our battles for us. We want the king to come in, have a central authority, somebody who can tell us what to do, somebody who can bring union to the nation, somebody who will create a standing army so we can fight our enemies professionally. That's what they wanted. And looking at the situation, who can blame them? Who can blame them? The nation for over 300 years has descended into chaos. And indeed, during Samuel's reign, era things have been going well, but now he is old and his sons are corrupt. Who is going to take his place? Soon enough, we'll be subject again to foreign invasions and catastrophes. Who can blame them? And we ourselves, in our day and age, We look around, and what do we see? Decay. Corruption. We see it in society, but we also see it in our own hearts, right? This constant drifting away into sin. And it grieves us as Christians, doesn't it? Sometimes there may be reformations of some sort, signs of hope, new starts, spiritual reformations, but also like economic reformations, political reformations. Who of you here still remembers the fall of communism? There is a system that was rotten and corrupted. On paper, looked really well. And by the time that regime came down, the people in Eastern Europe particularly were so excited. We got something new. Democracy, capitalism... That's what we want. It works in other places. We want it here. And indeed, it's brought a lot of prosperity and peace and freedom to those nations. But at the same time, I'm sure these people by now have figured out that it, did, it doesn't solve all our problems. And indeed, these new system bring new problems. Job security was no longer a thing in a capitalistic society. And on it goes. Or closer to home, signs of new hope, signs of hope, signs of of a revolution, of improvement. When a new president takes office and it's the man or the woman who you wanted to be there, somebody conservative, somebody who is supposedly going to revive the nation. Or closer to home. If you were to, for example, start a plant, a new church, coming out of a corrupt denomination, you want to split off and start something new. It feels that like you want, for some time, you want to defend the old because God has given it and God has provided, but over time, the baggage becomes so much you just want to leave it behind and start afresh. Start new. We do the same in our material lives. A car is no longer worth fixing up. Your home is too small and you need to move to something else. Your job is no longer exciting. It no longer motivates you. You want something else, something new. We have these yearnings over and again in all sorts of situations, don't we? And so did Israel. The old is decaying and corrupt. We need to move on. The question is, Where are you looking for the answers of all your problems? The issue that is bothering you right now, in one way or another, the thing that is preoccupying you, what is it that you want to come along to replace that problem? Where are you looking for your solutions? Worldly solutions, or are you looking with God? Are you looking for the new thing to solve your issues and make you happy and prosperous? Or are you first going to God, asking Him for a solution? And that brings us to the problem behind this request. What is the problem with this request for a king? That brings us to a second point, the real reason to request a king. So they come to Samuel and claiming in essence, that this theocracy was failing them. But the real issue behind it is that this theocracy, this system of judges and law, was deemed too stringent and consequential. How so? Well, if you read from verse 10 to 18, Samuel goes to the people... And he starts listing all the burdens that the king would bring. The king, was, the king was going to tax them. The king was going to take their sons to fight in his army. He was going to take his, his, your daughters to, to, serve him, to serve in his palace. And all these other things he was going to take of your fields. The burdens would be so great. The bureaucracy would increase. Why would you want that when you have this system? Least government involvement, freedom as long as you stay within these parameters. What's the problem? Because the people said, we'll take it. We'll take the burdens of the king. We'll take the burdens of the, co- of the monarchy. They insisted on it. Verse 19, no. We've heard, we've heard your complaints. We've heard your warnings. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge or govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a king to rule over us rather than having God as their direct king. Why? Let me just give you an illustration. It's been a few years ago that I was on a road trip out west with a friend and we're driving across the prairies. There was almost no traffic. But we noticed in the rearview mirror there was this car pulling up getting closer and closer. And as the car came closer, we saw that it was a police car. And he pulls up into our blind spot and just starts driving alongside of us for like some 10 minutes. Those are some long 10 minutes until eventually he pulled off in the median and started checking traffic or whatever it was. Do you feel the tension? Can you imagine the tension that that brought into our little car? But why? If the police is out there to protect me and to keep me safe, we should have been waving at them saying, Thank you. The problem was that just before that car pulled up, we'd been doing 10 miles over the limit. And we didn't know if he'd seen that, yes or no. Now, in our minds, we were perfectly justified. It was a beautiful, clear day. The road was straight. There was no traffic. We were doing nothing that would make us unsafe or endanger others. But deep down, we knew that we transgressed the law. And as this police car pulls up, we don't know how that man is going to respond. Is he going to pull us over, or is he going to let us go? But we knew that we'd done wrong. If he wanted to pull us over, he could. So there he is, driving alongside of us for some ten minutes, and it makes you feel incredibly exposed and under constant scrutiny. You're trying to pretend that nothing is going on, but meanwhile you know one wrong move and we're going to be on the side of the road for some very unpleasant experience. And that tension was the situation in Israel. We talked about how vulnerable the country was. Their existence as a nation was hanging on by a thread. And to them, here comes this God looking over their shoulder at their every single move. And the moment you do something wrong, there will be immediate consequences. The enemies will invade. Famine, drought, whatever it is. Look at the past. Look at how many times things went wrong. This God is not for us. He's out there to get us. You're walking under, uh, on eggshells, living under extreme scrutiny. There is a distrust for God. Therefore, this theocracy was too stringent and consequential. The system doesn't work because God is out there to get us. But what that shows is that ultimately Israel had rejected God. God. Israel had rejected God much more so than it had rejected Samuel. God points it out to him. In verse 7, he says, "...they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods." That was the real problem. They had forsaken God. They had rejected Him by their actions. Maybe not so much vocally. There was nobody maybe out there saying, you know, this God doesn't exist. Yahweh is no longer our God. But they were proving it by their actions, by going after other gods, by serving idols. Therefore, they had rejected God It was not theocracy that had failed the nations. It was not God who had failed the Israelites. These catastrophes, these foreign invasions, these famines, and all those other things that happened to them, the punishments that came upon them were a direct result of their disobedience and rebellion against God. They refused to serve Him exclusively and have no other gods before Him. And they refused to keep His law. Instead, they did what was right in their own sight. So time and again, God brought punishment upon them. And they could have known they themselves were out there on these mountains calling curses over each other, saying, if you don't obey God, eventually all these things are going to happen to you, and ultimately you'll be led into exile. They knew this. But because of all these catastrophes, because of all these punishments and these judgments that reigned upon them, Israel had developed a deep-rooted distrust of God. And they developed that distrust. The thinking that God is against us, that God is out there to get us, that God doesn't allow us anything in life. No joy, no happiness. Because the Israelites themselves failed to properly examine themselves. If they had done so, they would know and see that they were the problem. You see what's entirely missing in this request of Israel had come up to Samuel and say, Samuel, Lord, we need a king. We need a king because we ourselves are continually failing the Lord, and we need a higher authority to tell us what to do because we are no good. We are sinful. Confessing their sin in repentance, that would have been a whole different request. But there's no such there's no trace of that here. What we see indeed in this request for a king is a desire to be independent from God. How so? Well, if, if there was a king and this king would create a standing army and a centralized government, this king would be able to protect them from all these catastrophes. So they thought, well, if God isn't doing it, then give us a king that will, to give us an army, to give us food programs, to, co- to bring unity to the tribes so we can respond to threats as one nation. That's what they wanted. And this then would liberate the people from the dependence on God, so they thought. They would be able to cut themselves some slack, Things don't have to be so stringent as long as we can justify ourselves for what we do. Because God had told them He was going to care for them only by obedience and exclusive worship. They no longer wanted that. Give us a king to rule over us so we can do as we please. Where does that bring us this morning? Well, if you're still outside of Jesus Christ, you look at God's laws, you look at God's requirements, and if you're honest, you know that God, when He comes into your life, He takes everything. He's the King of everything. And He's going to be looking over your shoulder. You're going to be living before Him, before His face. And you know that if you give in to a certain sin, He will come after you and chastise you. That is too much. That is burdensome. That is consequential. That is stringent. This God is austere. This God, doesn't is, this God is a killjoy. He doesn't allow for anything in this life. It's going to be miserable. That's what Satan is trying to convince you of. God will appear as a harsh taskmaster who will put you under extreme scrutiny. And the moment you do something wrong, judgment will come. Is that how Christ appears to you? Is that how God appears to you? Can you be honest with yourself and look at the demands of God And tell me where they are morally wrong. How God's laws and requirements are not perfect and beautiful. And if they are, what does that tell you about your own heart? You're a sinner. You stand in need of a Savior. Because true children of God, if you're here this morning and you're a true believer... Do you think God's law is too stringent? That God is a harsh taskmaster? It shouldn't be that way, right? The more you read in God's word and in his law, you read of the gospel of grace, especially in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. It's a law of grace. A law that provides for forgiveness based on the sacrifice that God has provided Himself. But it is a law that tells upon you that if you do something wrong, you need to come out and confess it to Him and bring it to Him and resubject yourself to Him. But a true, to a true believer, that is no burden, is it? It can be hard at times, but you know that this is the way back to God. God's law, if you're a child of God, should be your delight. And God's laws are not consequential, meaning that they always lead to certain judgment and chastisement for those who will come to Him with repentance and faith. Instead, you will have the salvation of your soul, and you will be received with grace and forgiveness. So now you think about that. Israel had come to Samuel... Apparently with a good reason to request a king, but God shows it to him and says, no, your heart's not in this. What you really want is independence from me. You do not want me to be king over you. You want some slack so you can go off and serve your idols and do whatever it is that you please. That's why you want a king. Considering all this, why in the world then would God give them a king? And that brings us to our third point, the gracious purpose in granting the request for a king. There is an inherent sinfulness in the request for a king. God exposes it to him. Samuel, this is not because of you. This is because they've rejected me. Nevertheless, God tells Samuel to listen to the people. Three times in this passage, God tells Samuel, listen to them and give them a king. Despite the protest, despite telling Samuel to warn them about all the burdens that the monarchy was going to bring them, he said, still, give them a king. Clearly, it is God's desire to give them a king. Why? Because God was going to reveal His redemptive purposes through the monarchy. God was going to reveal salvation through the Israelite kings. The reason for God to allow for a king lies in the rejection of the people. That may sound very contradictory. You read in verse 7, he says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for, because... They have rejected me from being king over them. Yeah, go ahead, give them a king. Why? Well, because they've rejected me. It's as if God is granting them their request on the basis that they have rejected them, as, as, as if it was a reward. But what it reveals to us is that God himself also deemed the monarchy to be necessary. God believed and God knew that it was important for Israel to have a king. And the necessity of that monarchy, the reason why Israel should have a king, was precisely the failure of the people to obey him and to serve God because they were left to their own devices to implement the law, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. All they, like sheep, did go astray. They needed a king. They needed a king with a dynasty, a a lineage of kings a king that would have a son that would be the next king and another son that would be the next king and a lineage of king's children so that they would always have a king. Israel needed a king to tell them what to do, to tell them to obey the Lord and to follow His laws. What they needed was a king who would rule in righteousness, who would deliver them from their enemies and who would inspire them to serve and worship God. And indeed, the provision for such a king had already been made before Israel had entered the promised land in Deuteronomy 17. We don't have time to read that that whole passage right now, but if you do, you see how the request for a king was not necessarily something that was unbiblical. God had made provision for this already. And God had made provision for this precisely because in His plan of redemption, in His plan for Israel, and His plan for all of us, the Israelite monarchy, the Israelite kings would come to serve as a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20 stipulates, listen to this, The king of Israel had to be chosen by God from among the people. It couldn't be some foreigner. He had to be an Israelite. And when you read the particular descriptions, like the king was not to gather all sorts of wealth or women or amass a large professional army with chariots and horses. This king was supposed to rule in humility and independence upon God rather than his own strength and capacities. The king had to have a copy of the law, and he was to read therein day and night to meditate upon the law of God and then apply it in daily life, making sure that his rule was in accordance with the Word of God. No Israelite king no Israelite king that would arise from here on would ever hold to this description in perfection. The first king, Saul, began good, but his reign ended up in failure. Then comes David, the man after God's heart. Brilliant leader, Godly, God-fearing man, and yet you see him falling into sin, and you see throughout the end of his, by the end of his life the failures of his rule. Solomon, same thing, and over again. No Israelite king could fulfill these demands in perfection until the Lord Jesus Christ came. The one chosen by God, chosen from among the people, the servant who served God and His people in humility, who saturated himself in the law, in his own words, and lived it out to its fullest perfection. Having redeemed his people in his human nature, God raised him up from the dead, brought him into his presence in heaven, and seated him at the right hand on the throne of God, where he rules as king. Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic monarchy, of the Davidic dynasty. For he rules for eternity. You need to think about it. This really is a human man in his human nature who sits upon the throne of the whole universe. And there he governs the whole world. And there he governs you if you are a child of God He rules you and all His people by His Word and Spirit. And He defends and preserves them. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31. So He governs you by His Word. By His Word, He directs you, changes you, transforms you through the applying power of the Holy Ghost. So he governs you and he fights your battles for you. He defends you. He preserves you against the attacks of Satan. He prevents you from falling. And when you do fall, he raises you up. And you can never fall from grace, but eventually you will be brought into his presence. You notice how the people come to Samuel. What is it that they request? They want a king. Who is going to judge us, who is going to govern us, and who is going to fight our battles for us? That is precisely what Jesus came to do. Having redeemed his people, he came to rule us by his word and spirit and to defend us. And that he continues to do until this very day and until the day he will come back on the clouds. The kings of Israel were types of Christ in their office. Not because they themselves were perfect. Many of them were not. But in their office, they were types of Christ. So the people could look at the office of king and saying, that is one day what the Messiah is going to be like, particularly for defending the nation and for governing over them. Now, you could have an Israelite king coming alongside and reform the nation. Hezekiah, Josiah, great reformers. Manasseh, incredible reform. But he could not change the hearts of the people. But Christ can. That makes him the most powerful king in the universe. Christ alone can transform the heart. You might look around in this society and you wonder is God is still in charge when you see that the society decline into sin and corruption. But make no mistake. Christ's kingdom is invisible for the outside world, but it is very very real and it is in our hearts. In our hearts where we are being transformed and ruled by His Word and Spirit, and where He defends us and fights our battles and upholds us, Christ's spiritual kingdom is the ultimate answer to the question, why in the world God would allow Israel to have a king after they had outright rejected Him? And that is the greatest question of humanity. Because we all have rejected Him. Adam and Eve rejected Him. We've rejected Him that He would be no king over us. And what does He do? Instead of leaving us to our own devices, instead of leaving us to following our own heart, our own desires, to be our own little kings, He gives us King Jesus to come and to restore you into His presence and to deliver us from ourselves. That's why Israel needed a king. That's why we need a king. Where does that bring us today? Well, if you're still outside of Jesus Christ... Your life is as hopelessly lost and without direction and just as chaotic as Israel under the judges in that era. It doesn't matter if you gain the whole world by doing what is right in your own sight. If you have everything that the world can give you and you think yourself happy and satisfied in that because you know that one day you're going to have to stand before him And he's going to ask you an account of your life. He's the king of the universe, and you'll stand before him one day. Jesus alone can save you from the wrath of God. Who are you letting rule in your heart? You can be a Christian, come to church. Read your Bible, say your prayers, go through the motions while still allowing other things to rule in your heart. Justifying yourself while I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Give me some slack. Because the real king in my heart is self. Do you want to subject yourself to King Jesus? By nature, we don't. And I can say this from my own experience, because there was a time in my life where I didn't want Jesus to be king over my life. But I will tell you this. If you know this to be true, God's kingdom and Christ's reign are beautiful, soul-satisfying. It will be challenging, but it's soul-satisfying to know that it is well between you and God. Do you want this? If you can't stir that desire within you, then I urge you every day, take time. Be in the Word with a prayerful heart, and God is going to reveal to you the beauty of His kingdom, and He will transform your heart. And you'll go to Him and subject to Him with repentance and faith that you may be part of His kingdom. He's worth it. He's absolutely worth it. But if you continue to refuse and rebel against him and wanting to, desire, wanting to rule in your own life, he will destroy you. If not in this life, then in the next. Then go to him and bow to this King Jesus. But if you are a believer here too, there is a word of warning in this text. If we allow for other things to approach King Jesus and try to sort of co-rule with Him, the things that we think are going to cut us some slack, all these buffers that we have built in our life with our wealth and prosperity that we have in this society, the moment you put your hope on that, the moment you expect your happiness from that, you are letting another king come into your life. And I know this from experience, where God gave me the one thing that I craved, and I was so preoccupied with it, and I knew it, Lord, I'm committing idolatry, help me. That he can either take it away from you, or He will suck the joy right out of it, and it will become a thorn in your flesh. And in either way, we will be greatly, greatly disappointed because God is jealous for your heart. His reign is exclusive, and He will not allow for other things in there. Be careful going into this election season where you, stake your, where you stake your hopes. What is it that the perfect government is going to do for you than to preserve this nation so we can live in our little bubbles without having to go out on the street to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? If everything is just so. You know what the fastest growing church is in the world? Iran. God doesn't need politics. He wants to be your king and the king of his church, regardless of what the society looks like. And it goes for so many other things. What are you pursuing in this life? your career? You're chasing a girl or a boy? that new car that just came out or bigger house or whatever it is you can thank god for the blessings but make sure that they do not take a place in your heart because you will be disappointed and there again we need to come back whom will you serve Do you want to see the kingdom of Christ grow? Do you want to sacrifice for that? Or would you like to preserve your own little kingdom in your own heart? Whom will you serve? King Jesus or King Self? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your motives. Be honest with your motives because it will show you who you serve. And notice, the kingdom of Christ will be built, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You need no other king but Christ. You're facing trials and tribulations, you wish them away, you want something new, God may lift you out of your troubles, but if He doesn't, are we going to still subject to Him? The point is here that you seek Him in your troubles rather than looking for an earthly solution to get out of it. Because by going back to Him, you are subjecting to Him and His rule. But by trying to look for other solutions to replace your, to, to replace your troubles, You are rejecting his rule. Because it is God who is in charge of every aspect of your life. And therefore, you need no other king than Jesus. Therefore, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and ever. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will perform this. Behold your King, Amen. Lord God, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for King Jesus. Stir our hearts, Lord, to serve him wholly and obediently. Apply your word into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray, forgiving us of our sins, even as of this worship service. Father, we pray that you would be with us for the remainder of this day. Will you bring us safely back into your house tonight and help us, O Lord, to subject to your rule wholly because you are worth it, Lord Jesus. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.